Hello, I'm Rena Grobe. And I'm Madvi Romani. And this is Misinformed, a show where we'll be talking about our latest internet obsessions. So Rena, what did you get obsessed with this week? So June 11th to June 13th was the G7 Summit. Now, I realize that I didn't actually know much about the G7. Obviously, I've heard the term a lot, or the G8, you hear it thrown around a lot. I had no idea what it actually was. So this week, I've gotten obsessed with the G7, a sentence I thought I would never say. (laughs) Yeah, it's quite fascinating, actually, because we know of the G7, it happens, it's really important, all these leaders come together and decide stuff, but the question of how it started, who gets to be in it, are really fascinating. This group of world leaders that meet, it goes back to the 1970s when there was a big economic crisis. And it started with America, Britain, Italy, France, Japan, and Germany. Later on, Canada was invited in. And it eventually just became like seven countries. And the seven countries are those ones. Germany, America, Britain, Italy, Japan, France, and Canada. It should be noted that until recently, Russia was part of it, and then it was the G8. But with everything that Russia's been doing in Crimea, they were kicked out. Exactly. And the members sort of were supposed to have two things in common. One was large economies, and the other one was democratic values. And actually, Russia got brought in because there was this question of like, hey, can you actually decide big things, foreign policy things, without inviting in massive influential powers like Russia. And you could argue the same with China, India, all of those. And so there is the G20, where all of those countries are involved. And it's more like financial, economic decision making, whereas this one is sort of more political broadly. So back in 1975, These few countries produce 70% of global GDP, but now it's shrunk to about 40%, which is why a lot of people are saying that it's outdated or not really representative. Also, it's all a little bit chummy who got invited in or not, so like France and Italy were friends, or Canada, like Canada is kind of useless on the world stage, no offence to Canada, but surely other countries are more important, I guess? but Canada in it because the US are in it. So it kind of reminded me of a big mean girls clique of the world's most advanced economies and democracies. Although it's quite funny because if you look at GDP by country, then the United States is first followed by China, Japan, Germany. So China is not included, but they are in the G20. And then if you look at what is termed by a bunch of different people, the IMF and the World Bank and the UNDP, They ranked countries to best living standards in terms of advancements and things like that. And Denmark comes first, then Sweden, then the Netherlands, then New Zealand. So like there are loads of different ways of ranking this stuff. But in the end, it seems like it's all just friends. I was watching this YouTube video by TLDR News called What the Hell is the G7? What do they actually do? And the first comment is, I'll save everyone five minutes and 44 seconds by saying it's just a very elite weekend bender. And then somebody added paid for by taxpayers. And on that note, Greta Thunberg actually tweeted a picture of all of these kind of leaders having a great time on a balcony. 
and she posted that the climate and ecological crisis is rapidly escalating. G7 pours fantasy amounts into fossil fuels and C2 emissions are forecast for the second biggest annual rise ever, but the G7 leaders really seem to be having a good time presenting their empty climate commitments and repeating old, unfulfilled promises. Of course, this calls for steak and lobster barbecue celebration while jet planes perform aerobatics in the sky above the G7 resort. So she's talking about, you know, the big show and the party and everything that was kind of the G7. I guess sort of while I was researching what the G7 was, the thing that didn't really sit right with me is when you read these things, it's like the strongest economies making decisions. They're discussing the vaccine and they're they're discussing climate change. See these like five white men sitting there making up the majority of the people making these decisions about the world. And there's something kind of icky about this thought of like, ah, yes, we are the advanced countries when most of them are imperial powers. There's such a grossness to not acknowledging how you got to where you are and then having the audacity to make decisions on behalf of other people. Yeah, it just reminds me of one of those members only clubs and Yeah, there's something, like you said, there's something incredibly elitist and kind of gross about it. Also, just like, how uncreative is the name G7? Group of Seven. How unimaginative is that name? Try harder. Come up with a more clever name. How are these the people who supposedly have the most advanced countries in the world? So boring. So they did come up with one good name in their promises, I think. I don't know what you think. They came up with this global infrastructure initiative called Build Back Better World, which is shortened to B... 3W. What do you think about that? Not impressed. No. (laughs) So this initiative is actually supposed to be, I think it's quite good idea. It's like way late, but it's a counter program to China's Belt and Road policy because China has been building a lot of infrastructure everywhere in the world. You know, Sri Lanka, a lot of African countries, power plants, railways, highways, ports, telecommunications infrastructure, all of that sort of stuff, which is good on one hand. On the other hand, it's China. They're forcing these countries into debt. It's kind of neo-colonial. I think this is a whole podcast in itself, actually. So all of these Western democracies, when they got together, decided, hey, you know, maybe we should try and do something similar and promote, I guess, a little bit more fairer labor or balance the power because China's basically taking over the world. So I guess that's one of the things that they promised. Among other promises were, really importantly, COVID vaccines. They promised 1 billion vaccine doses to other countries. Half of it is coming from the US and 100 million from Britain and then the rest from the rest of the, the countries. The WHO chief and other public health officials said that it was good, but it actually isn't enough. Because to truly end the pandemic, 11 billion doses are needed to vaccinate at least 70% of the world's population by mid-2022. And there are also, you know, questions about logistics and things like that. They also, and this is also another podcast in itself, which we've been kind of talking about for quite a while, that they've urged China to cooperate with the UN Health Agency on a transparent second phase probe into the origins of the coronavirus, which is a whole new narrative that's been emerging recently in the news and media and politics and culture in general, which is kind of interesting. They also did some climate change promises. They committed to halving their collective emissions over the two decades to 2030, increasing and improving climate finance to 2025, 
and conserving or protecting at least 30% of our land and oceans by 2013, I can kind of understand why Greta Thunberg is pissed. Yeah, they also want to like spend money on helping poorer countries to cut carbon emissions and things like that. That's about 100 billion a year. But it has to be said that promises have been made concerning the climate before that we're not really kept. Let's see how that plays out. Doesn't it strike you as kind of odd that these countries that have caused the majority of carbon emissions and have therefore ruined the environment are now turning around and saying, we're going to help you cut carbon emissions? Yeah, and they're not doing enough to cut their own. And then like I was saying, was quite interesting about, you know, it represents now about 40% of the global GDP and about 10% of the world's population, the people who are making these decisions. And what happened in the UN, and you know, when all those African countries walked out before, they were just saying, you know, it's not going to affect you, it's going to affect us because of geography, and it's not being taken seriously enough. So Greta is right on point. What's really good is they decided on a global minimum tax for multinational corporation, thank God. If you're a massive billionaire corporation, maybe you might be able to not get away with so many tax havens, although I'm sure they still will. But the global minimum tax that they've put forward is 15%. And then they talked about a lot of stuff like Russian cyber attacks. Please don't do that, Russia. War in Ethiopia. Let's stop that. Yeah, they challenged China with the B3. I've forgotten the name already. W. B3W. B3W. And then, really interestingly, they talked about gender equality. So Boris Johnson, who was hosting in Cornwall, said these are his exact words in his speech. Building back greener, and building back fairer, and building back more equal, and how shall I, in a more gender neutral and perhaps a more feminine way. I think what he was trying to say is maybe gender equality and feminist way, but like you said, it's quite funny that all these men plus Angela Merkel are talking about gender equality and how important it is, and they really did highlight in their document that women have been affected the most by COVID. They're in caregiving roles. Pandemic really brought out this equality. And then they said that they would do something about it. And they made it a talking point. But the W7, which is the G7's official engagement group on gender equality, Mm -hmm. said, while making important statements on the need for measures to promote gender equality, almost no tangible or financial commitments were made. I think there was one thing that there was maybe committed to, which was women entrepreneurs, that they would put another additional 15 billion into an already existing program to help address the disproportionate barriers that women face to access capital, leadership roles, quality employment, and affordable care. But even though care and the health system has been the center of this pandemic and women's role in care, I mean, it's been more kind of business focused on what they're trying to regenerate and build back rather than like addressing the gender inequality. And that's quite disappointing. I like that you had any hope at all because you say it's quite disappointing. I just assumed it was a bunch of hot air. It is quite disappointing. I tell you what, though, man, they should get Sweden into the G7. Sweden had the first ever feminist foreign policy. And feminist foreign policy is actually a thing. In Berlin, we have the Center for Feminist Foreign Policy. It's institutes that helps craft and suggests tangible ways that you can make your foreign policy more feminist. What is the exact definition of a feminist foreign policy? So it's a political framework centered around the well-being of marginalized people 
and evokes processes of self-reflection regarding foreign policies, hierarchical global systems. So this means it takes a step outside the black box approach of traditional foreign policy thinking and its focus on military force, violence and domination by offering an alternate intersectional rethinking of security from the viewpoint of the most vulnerable. So basically, it's a way better foreign policy. And just a really quick history of it, 2014, Sweden announced the first ever feminist foreign policy. And then in 2017, Canada announced their feminist international assistant policy. Sorry for shitting on Canada before. And in 2019, France, Luxembourg, Mexico also announced their intention to adopt a feminist foreign policy. And in 2020, Mexico actually launched their feminist foreign policy. So just to give you an idea of how that works in real, if we take Sweden's, they have the Swedish Women's Mediation Network. It was founded in response to significant underrepresentation of women in mediation and peace processes. And studies have shown that if women are involved in peace talks and negotiations, you will get better outcome and a more peaceful outcome and, you know, agreements are reached much better. And so all of these women in senior positions have experience of peace building, diplomacy, political processes, and they have been involved in countries like Afghanistan, Burundi, Colombia, Georgia, Somalia, Ukraine and Zimbabwe to help mediate peace. So another thing is Sweden has regularly championed the issue of gender equality within the UN Security Council, of which it's a non-permanent member. And in 2017, references to women, peace and security were made for the first time in history in 100% of the Security Council's presidential statements on crisis situations. As well as that, it's promoted issues relating to women, peace and security on the agenda within regional and multilateral organisations. I mean, yay Sweden. But I do think it still should be pointed out that for all of these things as great as Sweden is. I mean, the Bechtel test comes from Sweden, right? And I think that I actually read something super fascinating about Sweden the other day that they were handing out Chimamanda Ngozi's Adichie's We Should All Be Feminists to every kid, regardless of gender, at the age 16, and that on their movie posters going forward, instead of just like the age rating, they were also going to have the Bechtel test or something, like where it scored on the equality scale on there. So, like, they are doing some really great things. They also did a really great thing in their language, and they introduced the gender-neutral term Mm -hmm. officially, way before everyone else. And it is consistently one of the most safest, best place for, for women to live. This is true, but I do think that it should still be pointed out that Sweden has a massive racism problem, and that this is only true if you're a white woman. So, for example, Sweden has the most segregated label market, of people with foreign backgrounds in Europe. Board of Integration stated that Muslims are exposed to the most religious harassment in Sweden. Around 40% said they have witnessed verbal abuse directed at Muslims. Sweden is home to several white supremacist and neo-Nazi organizations. Following Germany and Austria, Sweden has the highest rate of anti-Semitic incidents in Europe. Whoa. A government commission study from 2006 estimate that 15% of Swedes agree with the statement the Jews have too much influence in the world today. And hilariously, there is such a thing called xenophobia in Sweden, 
which is attitude towards migrants from Finland. But also, I think within the Scandinavian countries, this is based on nothing. There is quite a... Because they're so close together, you know how neighbors are? Yes. It's like the Scots and the English, no? I think, obviously, all of these things coming out of Sweden are great, but it's just when you take a step back and you look at the whole context in which it sort of all moves... You're kind of like, mm, not that great. And I think that that's true for the G7 overall, because when you look at, in theory, all of these things they say they're going to do, and all these advanced economies, in quotation marks, say they're going to do, it's, in what was it, in 2017, they caused major drama with Donald Trump and all this, and you just keep thinking, this is like high school. You're like the popular kids in high school sitting around a table making decisions for everyone else. The Donald Trump thing is really interesting, because you could see... And even now, it takes them, is it three days? To come up with one joint communique, right? And they are struggling with that. And with Donald Trump, they really struggled. And then it was, they didn't even come up with an agreement in the end. So that, is the G7 still relevant? So the, there's a report in the Center for Foreign Relations that says the G7 still has value because all the member countries are grappling with similar issues, including populist backlash against the uneven effects of globalization, and it's still a sort of manageable steering group of the West, and it often serves as a useful platform for pre-negotiation, allowing members to hash out disagreements before taking proposals to the G20 or other forums, which are way more inclusive. At the same time, the president of the CFR and senior fellow have called for a new concept of powers, compromising the United States, China, the EU, India, Japan and Russia, reminiscent of the 19th century concert of Europe, so that you would have permanent representatives supported by a secretariat to avoid what they call a fly-in, fly-out nature of the G7 and the G20 summits, which, like we were saying, does seem like a kind of frat party. Everyone comes in on their private jets, they eat, they look at a show or whatever, and then they kind of go back. So this would avoid haggling over detailed communiques, which, you know, they have trouble getting to anyway. So I guess those are the views on the G7. And on that note, here are our three things you can do this week to be a better person. The Center for Feminist Foreign Policy has a really good reading list on their website, which we'll link to in our newsletter. But if you want to find out more about that, we suggest that you really read that and think about different ways that foreign policy can be approached. Thing two, donate to the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy. They have a really nice donation button on their website. And thing three, since we fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole researching Sweden, I came across a really funny Swedish saying that translates to there's no cow on the ice. That's a kind of roundabout Swedish way of saying, don't worry, take it easy. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you like, you can share your internet obsessions with us. Tweet us at the underscore miss underscore informed or follow us on Instagram at the underscore miss underscore informed. You can also send us an email at misinformed.podcast at gmail.com. You can also listen and subscribe via YouTube for news about the show or upcoming events and links to all our sources, references, and other geeky inspiration. Subscribe to our newsletter. You can find the link via our Instagram. We are an independent, non-profit podcast. If you would like to show us some love, you can make a one-off donation via our SoundCloud or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash misinformed. Thank you for listening.
Until next time, goodbye.